Great. Thanks very much. Um, welcome. Thank you very, very much for coming out on a cold, wet evening, but I'm sure you won't be disappointed. It's going to be a great talk. Um, I'm very glad to welcome you all here to the Hobhouse Memorial Lecture for this year, which will be given by Professor Stephen Shapin. The Hobhouse Memorial Fund was set up in 1930 uh, to perpetuate the memory and celebrate the work of Professor Leonard Hobhouse, who was actually the first uh, established chair of sociology in Britain. And the Memorial Fund provides us with funds for students, for student prizes, which is a wonderful thing, and for this annual lecture. So we're very grateful um, to the fund. And actually, I discovered when I looked at the deeds, because this is an old fund, that the deeds actually specify that a fee of not less than 20 guineas, shall, 20 guineas, <laughs> sorry, guineas, sorry, 20 guineas should be given to the lecturer appointed um, to, to deliver the Hobhouse Memorial Lecture for that year. So um, we'll have to discuss how we'll, we'll manage that. So it's with really great pleasure that I want to introduce tonight's lecturer, Professor Stephen Shapin. Stephen's the Franklin Ford Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. And before joining Harvard, he spent some years at the University of California at San Diego. And before that, uh, in the Science Studies Unit at the University of Edinburgh. And both of these places are very well known um, centres um, for science studies, for social studies of technology and science studies. Stephen is really a very sort of key figure in the history and uh, sociology of scientific knowledge and his current interests include uh, the historical and contemporary studies of dietetics, which we're going to hear about this evening, the nature of entrepreneurial science, and he's also written quite a lot about the modern relations between science and academia. He's probably best known for his very wonderful book with Stephen Shapin, sorry, with um, Simon Schaffer, sorry, with Simon Schaffer called Leviathan and the Air Pump, Hobbes, Boyle and the Experimental Life. Um, he's written numerous other fantastic books, one of which is called A Social History of Truth, Civility and Science in the 17th Century. And he's also written um, a book that's been much translated called The Scientific Revolution. He's won numerous, numerous prizes for his books. I'm going to finish shortly. Stephen didn't want me to go into this at great length. Um, the Erasmus Prize, the uh, J.D. Burnell and Ludwig Fleck Prizes of the Society for Social Studies of Science, um, prizes from the British Society for the History of Science. Um, he writes regularly for the London Review of Books and for the New Yorker. And can I just say that if you haven't read any of his books, they're a great pleasure to read. He writes absolutely beautifully, and we're all very envious of his, um, his ability to write sort of so well and persuasively. So may I just now turn over to Stephen with great pleasure. Thanks, Judy. An absolute pleasure to be here. Um, it's usually a courtesy uh, to tell your audience what your talk is about, but in this case it's an absolute necessity because I've learned from hard experience, including my students at, at Harvard, that no one has a clue what dietetics is, or rather they think they know what it is, which is something about losing weight and living forever, and that's not it. 
the word dietetics, at least in English, was once familiar to practically every educated person, and now, as I know, it's not. Uh, people generally who think they know what it is think it has to do with diet, as in diet fat or, or, or diet craze or doing the Atkins or South Beach diet. That is the expertise involving practice of eating specifically to lose weight, to gain in health, longevity, or personal attractiveness. That's what tends to be in my students' heads when they show up for my course in the history of dietetics. I have to tell them this is not a course that's going to help them to lose weight, live forever, or gain personal attractiveness in the room empties. And then amongst the students that are left, I tell them what dietetics is or rather was and why it's worth serious intellectual consideration. It's a perspicuous site for anyone interested in scientific or technological or medical uh, expertise. It's a perspicuous site, arguably one of the most compelling sites for anyone wanting to think about the relations between our bodies, ourselves, our place in the natural world, and our knowledge of bodies, selves, and the world. And not least for anyone wanting to understand what is the same and what has quite recently changed in the cultural schemes linking our bodies, ourselves, and our knowledge, it's another way of uh, describing and interpreting whatever might be meant by cultural modernity, even a way of saying in what sense we are now modern. So what do I tell students? I tell them this, uh, dietetics is, was, a branch of traditional Western medicine. The other major branches being diagnosis and prognosis, what was wrong with you and what was likely to happen to you over time, and therapeutics, what, if anything, could be done, mm. especially with respect to pharmacy and surgery to restore a diseased person to health. Uh, unlike the other branches of medicine, dietetics was not a form of knowledge and practice called into play when you were manifestly ill, but something that was meant to maintain you in health, so that cognate terms were regimen, which also gives you a sense of, of a rule-governed life, and hygiene. These were, in the, uh, from antiquity to the early modern, pretty much cognate ways of referring to the same sort of cultural uh, practice and set of beliefs. And both dietetics and regimen evoke, even to modern ears, some notion of order, an ordered way of being, regiment or a ruled manner of living does so quite clearly, but so does diet when one thinks of the etymology. It's from the Greek dieta, meaning a way of life. You should get a sense of the quotidian, the day-to-day, -day, and the pervasive. And you should also get a sense of an ordered day, an ordered daily pattern of living. Some parliaments are called diets, expressing that sense. So dietetics is or was a part of medicine, and it's about an ordered manner of living through which you might hope to remain healthy. Saying that situates dietetics within what might be called an instrumental framework. That's to say it's a body of knowledge which is mobilized to serve specifically uh, instrumental goals, living healthily and long. It is that and is an instrumental body of, of knowledge. And it's belonging to medical culture allows you to understand it as a form of what Max Weber called Zweckrationalität. But it is or was at the same time an important feature of traditional moral culture, an aspect of prudential or practical ethics. It sits astride what's often thought to be a boundary between the instrumental and the ethical, the scientific and the moral. That boundary, the line reckoned to separate 
the worlds of description and prescription of facts and values uh, of is and ought is crucial to our sense of what scientific knowledge is and how it's to be distinguished from other forms of, yeah. of culture. Mm -hmm. The long history of dietetics for that reason gives you a unique opportunity to see some of the conditions through which this boundary and our sense of what science is came to be established. What are some of the consequences of this establishment for the daily practices of the self? How did it come to pass that our sense of what is good for you came to be segregated from our sense of what is good? Modern scientific culture is a possession and practice of experts. Although scientists sometimes complain and with good reason about the public ignorance uh, of science, some scientists claim that the very identity of science sets it in necessary opposition to common sense, whatever might be meant by that notion. Again, the long history of dietetics throws into relief the shifting relationships between scientific expertise and lay knowledge. How and with what consequences for the practices of the self did the knowledge of experts come to supplant lay knowledge of one's own body and the vicissitudes of aliment as it passes through one's own body. So what is or was dietetics? First, and while acknowledging all sorts of diachronic and synchronic variations, it was a remarkably stable <coughs> cultural constellation. It developed out of the Hippocratic corpus of ancient Greece. It was elaborated and given its most characteristic form by Galen in the second century AD, and by the late Middle Ages in Renaissance, it uh, had become something close to the common cultural possession of every educated European. And probably, though this is less certain, it provided a vocabulary for talking about food, bodies, health, disease, and indeed, as we'll see, character uh, for the uh, laity as well. University-educated physicians were experts in dietetics, but they did not own dietetic culture. It was too pervasive and too useful for a range of purposes for any one group to have ownership. The dietetic part of medicine belonged to the fabric of everyday life, as its other parts, diagnosis and therapeutics, did not. And just because dietetics was part of the fabric of quotidian life, it had to belong to you in a way that other bits of medical knowledge and practice did not. A physician might come to attend you if you were ill or injured, but exceptional circumstances apart, you could not expect a physician to be by your side every hour of the day, every time you ate or drank something. Dietetic culture was so pervasive and so useful in a range of human practices that it's not easy to account for its decline, if indeed decline and death are the right ways to speak about what happened to it from the 18th century to the present. But by the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th, the vocabulary of dietetic medicine began to lose much of its grip on expert culture, if not on lay culture. And by the mid-18th and early 19th century, a vocabulary and set of practices which are sometimes called scientific began to take the place of traditional dietetics. This is where what might be called the decline of dietetics meets the rise of nutrition science. So those are some of the broad brush characteristics of the domain of traditional uh, dietetics. I want now to describe its conceptual vocabulary and what people did with it during the long history of its cultural dominance. Understand that dietetics is a special instance of an ancient philosophy of nature, which has its roots in Aristotle and, and Plato. 
everything in the world is made up of the four elements, earth, air, water, and, and fire that you see in the, around the outer uh, circle. And each of these elements has associated with it a pair of qualities also on the outer circle, hot and cold, moist and dry. So the use of this vocabulary powerfully connected whatever could be said about our bodies and our food to the overall structure and processes of nature. When you talked about food and bodies, you were just orientating to a specific bit of the natural world. And the vocabulary you used to talk about the properties of a burning piece of wood, for example, were the same as those you used to talk about the characteristic of a piece of roasted meat and its vicissitudes when you ate it and digested it. That bit of the natural world, which was your body, did have a purpose-built vocabulary appropriate to understanding it and administering to it. And the fluid bits of the human body were made up of the four humors that you see there. Blood, phlegm, yellow bile or choler, or black bile or, or melancholy. In turn, each of the four humors manifested a pair of qualities so that blood was hot and moist, phlegm was cold and moist, yellow bile was hot and dry, and melancholy was cold and dry. This ontological vocabulary gave you a qualitative language as a bonus. That is, if you knew what things were made of, you knew something about their visible and observable characteristics, what it was in the nat their nature to be like or to do. The language of primary and secondary qualities brought in by Galileo and associated with the mechanical philosophy of the scientific revolution, you'll recall, was not like that. Now the relationship between what things were ultimately made of and their sense qualities was re-specified as a problem, both for philosophy and for empirical science, because what things were in the Galilean scheme ultimately made of was not what which is available to your senses. The language of hot and cold and moist and dry was available to be sensed. So what was available to be sensed told you reliably about what things were like in the Galilean world. They did not. And when you talked about food, bodies, and the natural world, you were using a voca vocabulary that was also deployed in talking about the psychological and moral characteristics of the self. It wasn't just that the humors each designated, for reasons I'll explain, a personality type. It was also that each of the qualities attached to a humor could be used to designate psychological and moral dispositions. Here you have an 18th century picture of people who are phlegmatic, choleric, sanguinary, and melancholic. You could see these people, what they were like, and what they were visibly like testified to the dominant humor that each type uh, uh, manifested. So traditional dietetic medical language showed how the medical and ontological were integrated and that same language display the integration between the bodily and the mental and moral. It's a psychosomatic view of the world. So this was a very rich and resonant vocabulary and it allowed you to understand a lot of things and a lot of things together. Its intellectual reach and its reach into the fabric of everyday life were just enormous. There are four things that I want to draw your attention to about traditional dietetics. First, there's the way in which dietetics stood with respect to the distinction between the medical and scientific on the one hand and the moral on the other. Second, there's the source of specific dietetic categories and their instantiation, how people knew how to describe the characteristics and effects of items of food and drink. 
Third, there's the question of self-knowledge and its reliability within the dietetic scheme. How one's bodily experiences of taste and digestion figured in making and sustaining dietetic knowledge. And last, there's the question of what kind of self with what relationship to both the natural world and to the body of expert knowledge was inscribed within traditional dietetics. And how that sort of self was reconfigured with the decline of dietetics and the rise of nutrition science. Mm -hmm. That's to say how the long history of dietetics serves as a marker of modernity. In traditional dietetics, health was understood as balance. You wanted to be neither too hot nor too cold, neither too moist nor too dry. Now it's true that people's natural constitutions, what are called their temperaments, their complexions, varied according to which of the four humors was dominant in them. So there are different senses of what is normal, although each, uh, the desirable state for each was the balance appropriate to each uh, type. The ideal state of your body was exactly intermediate in all the qualities represented by your four humors, but what was normal for a phlegmatic person tended towards the cold and moist, while what was normal for the melancholic uh, tended towards the cold and dry. Nevertheless, and with this qualification for normality for different temperaments, the intermediate position was the healthy one. And dietetic advice aimed overwhelmingly to deliver you to that balanced position and to maintain you in it. If it failed, or if you refused to follow its dictates, then you became unbalanced, diseased. Disease was the state of being un unbalanced. You became too hot or too cold, too moist or too dry, and that's what disease was the predominance of extreme qualities. And therapeutics, which could include changes in your pattern of living, including your food and drink, but also things like bleeding and drugs, sought to restore balance. That's what health was. Mm -hmm. You are what you eat. That's an old saying. It's widely attributed to the French gourmand Briat Severin in the early 19th century. But in one way or another, it goes back forever. It was a matter here of qualities, not of constituents. And the conditions for the knowledge of qualities is different from the conditions for knowing constituents, which is where I'm going to wind up. I'm going to return to that connection with the rise of modern nutrition science, because I think that's how we think about ourselves in relation to what we eat and drink. Now, you should not think of traditional dietetics solely in terms of food and drink. Today, diet, and for those who understand the term in its contemporary sense, dietetics, picks out element alone, food and drink. But this was not the case in traditional dietetics. In fact, dietetics dealt with the understanding and re uh, regulation of aliment as just one of a set of transactions you might have with the uh, environment. Its reach was far wider than the management of food or drink. The repertoire of transactions with which dietetics worked was known as the six things non-natural. And you see that food and drink is just one of the items of this list, which was known again to practically every educated person through the early modern uh, period. And in that period, say the 16th and 17th century, essentially everyone could recite the list of non-naturals. Food and drink, of course, but also airs, waters, and places where you situated your house, uh, waking and sleeping, how much you should sleep, uh, how regularly, patterns of exercise, and bodily exertion, evacuations, that's urination and bowel movements, but also sexual release. And lastly, and curiously to a modern eye, the passions of the soul, 
or as we would say, the uh, emotions. What the items on this list had in common was that each was not part of your innate endowment. Each could affect the state of that natural constitution that you were born with, and each was in principle subject to volitional control. So that you could, as a medical expert or wise person, advise people to do something with respect to how they ate, slept, defecated, etc., etc. And what they did would eventually and possibly powerfully feed back into the state of the body. Note here that you could advise someone to manage their emotions, get a grip, for example, not to be so sad or not to get so angry. And while this might be hard, it was understood to be entirely possible. You were appearing, appealing here to the rational soul, that which made a person uniquely human and not an animal. And if they said they couldn't do it, if they couldn't control their emotions, then their identity as a competent human being was called into question. So this is, a, shall we say, a pre-Freudian scheme in which the emotions not only should be, but can be volitionally managed by appealing to the rational soul. It's in the non-naturals, uh, it's the non-naturals that allow you to appreciate the reach and penetration of dietetic medicine. The management of the six things non-natural was just an enormous part of a person's everyday life. Where to situate your house, what sort of occupation to take up, what to eat and drink, how to deal with the emotions, etc., etc. So one way of talking about dietetics is to say that traditional society had a medical theory of practically everything, and that would be true. But another way of putting the same point would say that traditional society had a moral theory of the body and its vicissitudes, health and disease. The list of non-naturals was a pervasive organizing frame for early modern medical texts. Here are the things you have to attend to if you want to maintain health and live a long time. But that same list of the non-naturals was an almost equally pervasive organizing frame in the Renaissance and early modern uh, culture for giving ethical and moral advice how to be a virtuous person. Same, same culture. Here again, what was good for you was also a formula for what was good, not an analogical relationship. It was the same sort of advice. So what sort of advice did you get in texts about the non-naturals and their management? And the council was remarkably stable and consistent. You should observe moderation. Do not eat too much or too little. Do not evacuate too often or too infrequently. Take exercise, but not too much. Follow nature's dictates in sleeping, but do not stay too long in bed or remain awake when sleep calls. If you follow this advice, correcting, of course, for your particular temperament, you're giving yourself your best chance of remaining well and living a long time. So temperance was good for you. Temperance moderation was good for you. But temperance was also good. It was, after all, along with prudence, justice, and fortitude, one of the four cardinal virtues. Where extremes were vices, the position between extremes was virtuous, the golden mean. Instrumental medical expertise wasn't, as we might say, in some sort of metaphorical relationship to moral counsel. It was, I repeat, exactly the same thing. The golden mean was the position of virtue and it was the way to health. Here, you are what you eat refers, of course, to body making, but it also refers to the making and maintenance of a moral self. 
In traditional dietetic culture, how did you know what you should eat and drink? The general counsel of moderation could be taken as given, but every individual was understood to be different, not just through possessing one of the four temperaments, but also by way of a unique personal history of transactions with the environment. Custom, it was said, is a second nature, and in traditional dietetics, that could be taken literally. Over time, habit, including the management of the, of the non-naturals, had the capacity substantially to remake you, and that is one reason why few physicians recommended that you make any sudden change in your way of life, because what you had built up through custom, through your daily patterns of living, had made you what you were, so that sudden change was widely regarded to be a very dangerous thing to do. What you had got used to was, in one sense, good for you, and in another sense, it was you through the management of the non-naturals. One route uh, to dietetic knowledge was by way of expert practitioners, what they said and wrote. You could read books about this. There were lots of them. But expert physicians never possessed an exclusive authority to pronounce on what was going on with the particular body that was you. From antiquity through the early modern period and beyond, a popular saying had it that every man should be and was his own physician. Sometimes they said every man over 40 was his own physician, 50, 30, whatever you like. I'm still working on it. It expressed the sentiment that set limits on an expert doctor's authority, but it was not necessarily motivated by skepticism about physicians' competencies or by hostility to their role. Just because the management of the non-naturals constituted such a large part of your quotidian life no other person could possibly know as much about how things went with you as you did yourself. No one but you knew how your body responded to a particular food, a combination of foods, the order in which you ate foods, or whether you were better off defecating three times a day or just once. Your physician might very well want to know these things, but he could only know them if you told him. You should be your own physician because the best medicine was no medicine at all. It was a course of life that prevented you from ever becoming ill. And if you made a study of yourself and learned from experience what went well with you and what did not, then you would be not just an expert on yourself, but the only genuine expert. In traditional dietetics, you could also be your own physician for reasons that had to do with the theory of matter and of humors that gave dietetics its basic philosophical vocabulary. Remember that you, your bodily substance, was made out of the same elemental entities with the same repertoire of qualities as external nature, including the food that you were eating. What was good for you in general was element whose qualities matched your own temperament. If you were, for example, choleric, tending a bit towards the hot and dry, then foods that tended also towards the hot and dry should be your normal fare. Of course, if you were ill, your humors unbalanced, then you needed to be restored to health by dietary rebalancing. So someone who had become abnormally cold and wet needed to feed on warming and drying things, and someone who had become too hot needed a lowering diet of cooling things. But most people, most of the time, were not ill. And so the formula stood that you should eat what was like you. How could you know what foods were good for you? There were, of course, lots of Renaissance and early modern books, commonly called dietaries, 
that typically went through a long list of foods explaining which were hot and in what degree, which were moist, and so on. You could read those books and learn. Uh, though the largely analogical forms of reasoning inferring, for example, that melons were cold and moist and that roast beef was hot and dry was as available to the layperson as it was to a university-educated physician. But there were other ways of knowing, apart from this analogical reasoning, looking at a, at a melon and figuring out that it was cold and, and moist, there were other w ways of knowing what food suited you and these ways were also folded into the fabric of everyday life. One way was through taste. A Latin tag had the quod sapit nutrit, roughly translatable, if it tastes good, it's good for you. Absent a dietetic natural philosophy, that seems either self-indulgent or incoherent, but within a dietetic framework, it was neither. Your tongue is part of your bodily substance, and as such, it is made of the same stuff, manifesting the same disposition of qualities as the rest of your body. When the tongue encountered a foodstuff, its response was positive if the food's qualities matched its own, or negative if they did not. The dietetic term of art for the positive response was agreement. You could say that a food agreed with you if the tongue testified to its fundamental compatibility, if the tongue liked it, if you liked it. And you could also say that a food agreed with you if it was readily digested and came out the other end easily and in due form. The experiences of agreement were philosophically framed, but as inner experiences, they were understood to be uniquely available to you. You knew what agreed with you. It was a subjective experience. No one else uh, could know that. Your expert <laughs> physician might very well want to know what agreed with you, but by far the most powerful and reliable source of knowledge that your physician had of this agreement was you, your, your testimony, every man his own physician. Now consider the conceptual language used in dietetic culture for talking about the relationship between the categories of experience and the categories of existence. Hot and cold, moist and dry, are, as I've said, qualities inhering in objects in the world, including those objects that form your element and those objects which are you. The categories of being and the categories of subjective experience are one in this scheme. Dietetic culture rendered the categories of sense experience epistemologically reliable, including those senses usually thought of as low and insensitive. The tongue was thought of in specific circumstances as a philosophical probe into the constitution of the world, a reliable probe, and digestion was an epistemologically relevant process. Now, it's probably wrong or simplistic for historians to say that any culture as pervasive as traditional dietetics ever disappears. Indeed, you'll already have recognized that much of the vocabulary of Galenic dietetics remains with us, as when we still say that something doesn't agree with us or that someone is phlegmatic or cold-blooded. And it should remain an open question what vocabulary and concepts still circulate in lay society to make sense of our element, our bodies, and ourselves. Nevertheless, already during the late 17th and early 18th centuries, 
university-trained physicians were moving away from the concepts and categories of traditional dietetics and using other notions to talk about aliment and its fate in the human body. Here are some markers of those shifts. In the middle of the 18th century, the Scottish medical professor William Cullen wrote extensively about aliment, nutrition, and digestion without much use of Galenic dietetic language. Cullen was concerned with identifying the nourishing bits of human aliment, and in these connections, he used chemist's language to describe and explain what was nourishing. He was a chemist, and this was a natural thing for him to do. So, for example, plants, he said, have quite a lot of what he called common matter, which is neutral to your taste. This might be nourishing, but the reliable signs that plant foods actually are nourishing are given by their being either sweet or acid. These are what Cullen called the sapid bits of your element. Take acid. I can't think I've actually said that. <laughs> Consider acid. Acidity was, of course, a chemist's category, and there were specifically chemical ways of defining what acidity is. But acidity is also subjectively available to you. Lemons are acid, for example. Everybody knows this, and not just chemists. Acidity is a vernacular as well as an expert usage, and it bounced around in 18th century lay culture in roughly the same sort of way that heat and moisture did and do. And take sugar and sweetness. Sugar is both a commercial element and a chemical category. Cullen knows that sugar is nourishing for a number of reasons. One, not developed in a major way in Cullen's writings, relates to the tag, quote, sapid nutrient. Just as acerbity in plants is often a sign, don't eat me, I am unpleasant, not sapid, and I may be poisonous, so sweetness, the sensation of which is understood to be caused by the substance sugar, both a lay and chemical item, is a sign, eat me. I am sapid, and I am almost certainly nourishing. Cullen didn't say precisely that sweet things agree with the human body. He didn't use that language. But one can easily say that his enthusiasm for sugar, which was widely concurred with by 18th century physicians, and especially, of course, in Scotland, enjoyed an enormous credibility boost through the pervasiveness of the Galenic culture that offered a physical explanation of why it was that we love sweet things so much. Sugar tastes good, and it is very good for you. Most of the other categories that Cullen used to designate the nourishing components of aliment have a similar character. That is, while none of them is Galenic, no four elements, no four qualities, almost no talk of humors, they belong both to the world of the expert chemist and to the vernacular world. And so you could refer to Cullen as a transitional figure around the 1760s, 1770s, as a transitional figure. The categories he invokes to describe the nature of aliment are, for the most part, as available to the senses of the eating subject as were the categories of traditional dietetic culture, the qualities. Yet they have, at the same time, precise meanings within the conceptual and operational world of the expert chemist. Roll history forward less than a century, and you enter a world in which the nature of aliment is wholly configured within the language and concepts of chemical expertise, where one can say it remains. 
This is a world substantially brought up into being in the 1830s and 1840s by the English chemist William Prout and by the German chemist Justus von Liebig. By the time Liebig began working systematically on nutrition, his scientific inheritance included the doctrine of chemical elements, ushered in by John Dalton a generation before, the expert world containing oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, and carbon. Notice that the learned world continued to talk of elements, but the notion of an element completely changed. Once water was an element, and now it, it was not. Once all the elements were both available to the senses of a layperson with qualities apparent, and now very few of them are. Think, for example, of the difference between hydrogen, carbon, and gold. Gold is an element which is available to you to be, be sensed. Hydrogen is not, and carbon is only certain conditions. For Liebig, the body is a chemical system, and nutrition and digestion are to be understood in chemical terms. Animal heat is combustion. Respiration is about taking in oxygen. Oxygen combines with carbon and hydrogen, and it passes out in the form of carbonic acid, CO2, and water vapor. Food is literally fuel. With a proper supply of oxygen, he said, we obtain the heat given out during its oxidation or combustion, 1830s. Liebig's most celebrated contribution was to make a chemical distinction among elements between those which fueled the body and those which built and maintained the body's fabric. The fuel bits were known chemically as sugars, starches, and fats, the first two of which soon came to be labeled carbohydrates. These were defined chemically in terms of the ratio of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and also crucially for Liebig by the absence of nitrogen. Nitrogenous element, what Liebig called plastische Nahrungsmittel, and around the same time was named protein, not by, by Liebig, built up the body's substance, its fabric, though it too on occasion could be burnt as fuel. However it was called, these nitrogenous elements were also defined through the operations of chemical expertise. Protein, carbohydrates, and fats are defined chemically, not available to the layperson. I think you can see where this story is going. And so there's no need to do more than to remind you of its development in nutrition science and in the study of metabolism through the early 20th century, led notably by the work of the American chemist Wilbur Atwater with the respiration calorimeter in the 1890s and 1900s, the calorie came to be established as the unit of alimentary energy content, not a constituent, but a power, a property of your food, with the body configured as a heat engine. This came from thermodynamics into nutrition science. The energetic powers of foodstuffs were defined through chemical analysis. The recognition of the nutritive role of compounds called vitamins can be taken back at least as far as mid-18th century attention to scurvy in the Royal Navy. Uh, these organic trace elements uh, then were renamed uh, uh, vitamins uh, in the uh, 1900s and, and 1910s. They were then supposed all to belong to the chemical class of amines. The achievements of modern nutrition science in identifying the nutritive components of foodstuffs and their role in the body are substantially indexed by one of the great artifacts of the present-day incorporation of science into the functions of the state. This is the nutrition label. This is a, an American nutrition label. I believe this is uh, 
a rather nasty thing called barbecue chips or, or crisps. This is a very similar UK nutrition label. I think this is for beef cannelloni from Sainsbury's. But you see in, in both of these that what aluminum contains is refracted through the scientist's laboratory, the categories, cholesterol, sodium, carbohydrate, dietary fiber, sugars, etc., etc., are, are, are defined through the operations of, of chemical expertise. So look at a label like this. It tells us what our food contains, and indeed for nutritional purposes, what our food is. So many calories, so much fat saturated in trans, so much protein, so much carbohydrate, cholesterol, vitamin A, potassium, and so on and on. Now notice something about this representation, with perhaps one or two exceptions, the condition of knowing what our food is proceeds, as I said, by way of the scientist's laboratory. We hold this knowledge, to the extent we actually do hold the knowledge, by courtesy of and through trusting specific forms of scientific expertise. Mm -hmm. We have no other way of knowing cholesterol, protein, potassium, or vitamin content. These things are not accessible to you in the way that, say, the coldness and wetness of a melon is accessible to uh, an actor in traditional dietetic culture. Here you are not your own physician, and there is no way you could possibly be, since you rely upon expertise for your knowledge of what food is and what it becomes in passing into your body. The exceptions to this may be only apparent. Fat, sugar, and sodium, where one could say that the fat content of foods is evident from their appearance of fattiness, that their sweetness indexes their sugar content, and that their sodium content is just another way of noting their salty impact on the tongue. But even these exceptions should dissolve since we have little or no experiential access to kinds of fats. And a sweet or salty taste may, thanks to modern chemistry, be elicited by artificial sweeteners or by non-sodium salts. The sense of taste has been here, so to speak, deontologized. And of course, so have been the experiences of digestion also contained in the notion of agreement. The tongue and the nose are no longer treated as reliable probes into the nature of things. And we do not build our knowledge of alimentary content through sensory analogy, but through experts' reports of chemical analysis. To the extent we still say something doesn't agree with us, we often understand that this is a case for an antacid correcting a chemical, not a humoral imbalance. Taste and smell experiences and judgments have been filed away in the cultural drawer labeled subjective, carrying the epistemic health warning that there's little to be coherently said about them, de gustibus non est disputandum. Yet this stripping away of ontological significance from taste and smell has freed them up to do all sorts of other things in our culture. The removal of smell and taste experiences from the systems of making reliable knowledge of the world and of our bodies made taste a scientific and philosophical orphan, but it also made taste a suitable case for connoisseurship. That's where connoisseurship lives not where science lives in our culture. While the ontology of the nutritional label is importantly the product of specialized expertise, it has also, to some extent, been vernacularized in our culture. Lay members of modern society, 
though clearly not all lay people, can parse the old saying, you are what you eat, through the expert vocabulary of nutrition science. And this is evident, for example, in the circulation in lay society of phrases like watching one's cholesterol, knowing one's serum level of HDL and LDL, and knowing or inferring the cholesterol content of foods. We understand that we are what we eat partly through knowing the chemical constituents of foods and accepting, at least formally, that those constituents undergo chemical transformations in becoming us. We still say you are what you eat, but the you, the what, and the are are not what they once were. The you that eats what you are has been reconstituted through scientific expertise, a situation in our relations with aliment that is, of course, mirrored in many other aspects of modern selfhood, notably including sexuality, mental competencies, and characteristics. Modern selves are, in part, scientific products. We are what scientists say we eat. The replacement of dietetics by nutrition science can therefore be taken as an instance of the submergence of vernacular or popular accounting systems to the authority of expertise. But from a pertinent point of view, it's an instance of the extent to which expertise can come to constitute a new vernacular. It originates in the scientific laboratory, but comes in part to belong to the laity a way in which we make sense of ourselves in our transactions with the world. That's one way of talking about the power of experts, of aspects, uh, experts of, in modern science. Yet at the same time, this cultural transformation also testifies to the changing grip of expertise on quotidian life, and one might also say to its diminishing grip. That seems paradoxical. If nutrition science helps constitute modern selves, by passing them through the laboratory, how can one possibly say that nutrition science has less authority than traditional dietetics did? Now, there are several senses in which this is the case. First, in traditional dietetics, recall that the management of food and drink was just one of the volitionally controlled domains of human activity about which the dietetic physician gave advice. You might object that the citing of one's house, the management of defecation, and the control of the emotions are not medical topics. But that's just to reassert present-day senses of what is and what is not medical. It's common to hear people these days refer to the modern medicalization of all sorts of human concerns. But it's arguable that medieval and early modern medicine reached much farther into quotidian life than contemporary medicine has even dreamt of. Indeed, you could defend the argument that modernity marks the demedicalization of life. Once medicine took charge of an ordered manner of living, now it has ceded almost all of that authority either to other sorts of experts or handed it back to the unencumbered modern self. The second point follows from this. Not only did traditional dietetics take as its province a very large chunk of quotidian life, it also had a powerful formula for telling people what they ought to do in ordering their lives. It was medicine with a message. It was normative. Medical experts had immense moral authority. The dietetic physician could tell you what was good for you at the same time and saying the same things what was good. And medicine could exert its moral authority without leaving the domain of medicine. That is because what was good for you, as I've noted, was what was good. 
And again, just as moderation was a master formula for how to maintain health and live long, so moderation in the form of temperance was a virtue. The recipe for health was just the recipe for virtue. Medicine was morality in a somewhat different idiom. And the authority of medical expertise flowed importantly from the bootstrapping of medicine and morality. In a secular idiom, the credibility of medical temperance might be bootstrapped by prudence, by everyday ethics. In a religious idiom, by the notion of God's laws of nature, how God wanted us to behave, the rational following of which resulted in health and long life. And that bootstrapping amounts to enormous cultural power. So how, from the perspective of dietetics and its historical changes, can you describe aspects of modernity, how we live now? First, I've used the vocabulary of the modern order to describe pre-modernity, for example, in the juxtaposition of the medical and the moral. But while 17th century people recognized boundaries between what belonged to medicine, natural history, and natural philosophy on the one hand, and what belonged to moral discourse on the other, the reference of these categories was not the same as our reference. Medicine was not the same as moral culture, but what was included in medicine for them encompassed what is included in moral discourse for us. Dietetics is the culture, more than any other, that shows us what that means and how we differ from the ancestors. That's where we can see the historically shifting boundaries between the is and the ought, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else. Second, there's the question of expertise and lay knowledge. The so-called withdrawal of high from low culture has been attributed to practically every age since the Renaissance. But there's a compelling case for its, its significance in medicine. You might be your own physician in a dietetic culture because the non-naturals were things an expert might advise on, but which only you could effectively report upon and manage. And you might be your own physician because your sensory experience of aliment, both taste and digestion, was considered to give you reliable knowledge of what things were like. Neither of these is the case anymore. When it's said that modern culture has been medicalized, one thing it cannot mean is that we medically monitor our quotidian lives more than polite society did in, for example, the early modern period. It's pretty clear to me that we do that less now than people did in the past. Third, I've tried to point out the ways in which instrumental advice, what was good for you, occupied much the same cultural terrain as moral advice, what was good. In talking the language of medical science, you were using the same sort of vocabulary and coming to the same sort of conclusions about right conduct uh, as explicitly moral discourse. From that point of view, the sundering apart of the good for you and the good belongs to the same modern cultural move as the well-known philosophical identification of the so-called naturalistic fallacy, the claim that you cannot logically move from is statements to ought statements. Science is supposed to offer us means not to constitute ends. If the ends by default are defined by the search for individual health and long life, then what has happened to the ethical framework once constituted by the virtue of balance, moderation, and temperance? An ethical framework which was orientated towards the conduct of the individual in society. One could say that it's disappeared, and that one sign of its disappearance 
is the extreme fad diet, of which the Atkins diet was the most recent and most influential manifestation, and the range of near-starvation diets uh, that are its counterpart. Both of these would have been recognized in traditional dietetics certainly as bad for you, but also as bad. But one could also speculate the dietary quackery is one side of the coin, the other side of which is nutrition science. When you move from the world of qualities to the world of constituents, you also move from a vocabulary once shared between medicine and ethics to one which has little ethical grip and which does not have everyday ethics to balance it, to talk back to it. So here a telling observation is not that the council of moderation and balance has disappeared, but that it has moved elsewhere in modern culture with interesting consequences for its authority and its relation to expertise and to virtue. Your physician is very unlikely to advise anything as bland as balance and moderation. A very few modern diet books do, but you can see why that's not a formula for being a bestseller. Your mother or grandmother may tell you that sort of thing, but you never listen to them anyway. The late Julia Child counseled balance and moderation quite a lot, uh, but she said it as a cook, and with full awareness that every time she threw a gob of butter into a sauté pan, she had to counter a shudder of cholesterol horror in her American audience. So here are some influential contemporary, present day, commendations of traditional medical and ethical wisdom, uh, and they don't come from physicians, they don't come from nutrition scientists, they don't come from diet books, or from chefs, I'll show you them. So here are a, a handful of uh, instantiations, these are quotations of modern dietary prudence, and you see in white the iteration of notions of balance and moderation exactly mirror the sense of the golden mean and moderation of traditional dietetics. Sound principles are balanced variety and moderation. Moderation is the key. All foods are nutritious, taken in moderation. Eat sensibly. A balanced diet consists in a variety of foods taken in moderation. Mix together daily activity, a sensible diet, and a little fun. I don't know why I didn't put that in white. A recipe for keeping your body balanced. So as I said, these are quotations that don't come from nutrition scientists, they don't come from physicians, uh, they don't go from diet books. I'm going to show you where they come from. Uh, there is a, an American-UK difference here, but I can assure you that the, the first of them, McDonald's, is both US and, and, and UK. The second from the outrageous, largely Southern American chicken sandwich fast food joint, called Chick-fil-A, the second from Hershey's chocolate, would never find this with Cadbury's of course, the fourth from KFC Taco Bell, and the last from Pizza Hut, uh, from which one can uh, conclude, uh, I think that uh, traditional counsel has largely become the property of agents in modern society who themselves have the least credibility and have been amongst the forces most disruptive of dietary tradition. Prudence is now an aid to profit. The once most authoritative dietary advice is now a cynical attempt to link the bad and the bad for you to the good and the good for you. 
In every case, the counsel of balance, variety, and moderation is just a click away from charts of nutritional constituents and calorie content. One click will go from this sort of advice to the list of nutrition facts at the fast food joints. Tradition and modernity digitally side by side. And it's hard, I think, to, to think of a better index of modern attitudes to our food, our knowledge, and ourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've now got about um, half an hour for some, some questions and comments from the audience, and there are people uh, with microphones who are willing to, to go around. So perhaps if you could indicate um, to the stewards on your right and left if you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, and perhaps you could give us your name before you do so. Um, and I just wanted to say that I thought it was a, a fascinating lecture. I mean, one of the things I've learned from it is that we can't use science to decide what is good wine and what isn't then. There's no scientific test of this. We're trying. Oh, um, we got, oh right, sorry. Um, hi, uh, my name's Dean Peters. Um, so what I was partly interested by uh, the dietetic tradition is this notion of the body as self-regulating, right? Or self-regulating, but self-regulating towards the optimum, right? So all the advice is um, you can't do better than would naturally be the case for your body, right? You can screw it up if you avoid right. it, yeah, but you can't make it better. Whereas the modern sort of tradition is more, I guess there's this no more notion of extreme manipulability, right? So uh, you can screw it up through your diet, but you can also make it better than it would have been naturally. So yeah. uh, you have a problem with high cholesterol, what you need to do is take certain stuff out of your diet that you would naturally eat, um, and you can make it better. So I don't know if you could talk more about that. Um, I thought I knew where you were going, and then you threw me a googly, but um, I, think that, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the optimum point to be in traditional dietetics was at a, a, as a midpoint at, at balance. And one could say, this is what God intended for you, and what you could do by nature was no more to return you to that, that, um, that balance point, which, which God and the laws of nature instituted by God in, in, intended for you. Um, and of course, you, one way that you could make yourself unbalanced was by living in an unnatural life uh, out of accord with both secular wisdom and, and God's intention. Um, what we have, and where I thought you were going, is that the, an important modern perception is that we can, as one could finally tune an engine, we can be better than well. And so a lot of our attention to um, things like steroids uh, is how to maximize our output. And I think they're taking the mechanical analogy far to, to seek not to be normal, but to, to get the most out of ourselves. I think especially this is especially apparent in the United States, but also elsewhere. Athletics is one of the most. Uh, but also, I think, uh, through the, the, the wonders of modern pharmacy, as well as the wonders of modern chemistry, to be happier, to, to achieve happiness, again, through psychotropic. Uh, drugs. I don't think the uh, like, there is an exception. I'll 
try to mention, but I don't think, I think you're right that in traditional dietetic cultures, at least in civic life, one wanted to, to reach the optimum as, as a normal point, as a, as a balance point. The exception, which is, which is present in both uh, pagan and uh, early Christian culture, and which is, by the way, disapproved of by, by civically orientated physicians, is to achieve uh, maximal mental and spiritual powers through unbalancing the self, hence the acts of heroic fasting. Of the of the diet fathers and the the widespread equation between the intellectual scholarly life and asceticism, mm -hmm. and indeed the the cultivation of melancholia. So you remember Dürer's famous engraving of melancholia too, where melancholia is, is of course an unbalanced state and, and, a, and a pathological state, but a very desirable state to put yourself in the conditions for thinking profound thoughts and receiving um, artistic inspiration. Um, I just want to say how much uh, I enjoyed your, your talk, and I never expected to, um, to have a, a discussion of the six things non-natural at the LSE, so I think it's a very, um, very surprising and very enlightening talk. I think it's extraordinary that, um, that you've been able to give a kind of um, encapsulated view of dietetics from a, um, an, an ancient as well as a modern point of view. and so. Um, I just want to see if some of the corollaries of your um, position um, uh, w w would um, would entail a number of things. So, if if your thesis that the dis that the, the really the dislodging in the 18th century, not the 17th century, of a fully mechanistic worldview, so starting with Descartes' um, uh, separation of mind and body. Um, we get the beginning of the decline of any kind of macrocosm, microcosm ideal that you can still see in such people like Harvey and uh, Oxford physiologists where they're still very much working on a, uh, uh, an ancient model. And certainly the decline of Galenism isn't really over until the 19th century. So, um, so the question is um, um, about self-knowledge and uh, dietetics and as a route to self-knowledge. And, and I wonder whether or not in some ways um, can you only really make the connection between virtue and self-knowledge if you retain a kind of Aristotelian or uh, um, um, ancient soul-body connection so that this, the uh, uh, experiences of the soul and the body are the vehicle actually for virtue and self-knowledge. And that really, um, with the rise of uh, the mechanical philosophy uh, and the uh, mechanical worldview, which uh, that comes with it, separates the mind and the body into separate substances. So, in fact, we have something like Freudian psychoanalysis, which, on your reading, would be emerging from a mechanical view of the body, and um, which is distinct from. Um, a heat engine, as you say, um, based on a kind of thermodynamic theory. So if that's the case, then do you think in a kind of counterfactual history scenario that you're so good at um, uh, weaving, um, do you think that the, um, uh, 
the possibility of the, the chemical philosophers and physicians in the, in the 17th century um, being granted royal charter in the 1660s would have brought forward uh, this view of uh, the body as uh, separate and therefore this whole view of dietetics versus nutrition happening in the earlier in the 18th century rather than in the 19th century. Gee, that, that's, that's very clever and very complicated and I'm tempted to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do like counterfactual questions. I think they're, they're coherent and legitimate. But, um, I, think, I think almost by definition that, that it would have done, but one, one is, remember that one's dealing with the, the intensely problematic and very difficult to, to address connection between what um, educated physicians believe, wrote, and said on the one hand, and the sense-making practical activities of a range of, of people, including educated people, on the other. That, that's essentially, and I'd also like to say that when one talks, uh, one of the most intractable things that I have to consider is when one says, and some people say that colonic dietetics died uh, more confidently than I want to say any such thing. I don't know what we believe. I don't know what I believe about my food and, and uh, my, my character and the world. I, I'm increasingly drawn to the absence, not just the absence of any coherent such schema, but my access to bits and pieces of incoherent schemas that I draw upon every now and then. I think that's as honest as I can get. So I don't know, and there has been remarkably little curiosity about what lay members of our society or even what popular culture in the 18th and 19th century thought about. We have some access, of course, my colleague Charles Rosenberg at Harvard, uh, one of the few people who's made an examination of popular medical texts, the kind of texts that just anybody would have in their home along with the Bible. Uh, through the 19th century, so it's a text which appears in the middle of the 18th century and is being reprinted in the 20th century, and there you do find Galenic language. But in terms of, of medical practice, you know, we, you always must make a distinction between what it is that doctors said, believed, and did, and the provision of medical care or of knowledge of health and disease. These are two very different things. They are different things for us. But in traditional dietetic culture, one thing that we know with, with some confidence is that they belong to the same conceptual world. I could massage that a little bit, but they belong to the same, there's a common culture there. And one can index it in all sorts of ways, including the way in which Shakespeare, for example, no doctor, describes people, makes sense of people. It has been said, again by my colleague Stephen Greenblatt, amongst others, that Hamlet is written out of a a medical text on melancholy in the 16th century. It, the way in which people, to use Goffman's term, presented themselves, made sense of others. Even in, in art history, how people were re represented, the characterology, the, the, the diagrams of, of the, the passions, uh, testified to this being a shared vocabulary. So simply to say that vocabulary has disappeared from the medical schools of Edinburgh and Harvard is one thing. That's true. But what it is we think about our, our food, we do use, I want to insist that we, do, we have vernacularized the nutrition label. 
It's clear that we do. We all know. We've all used the the, the notions that nutrition is able to talk about our, our practical activities and what we are as a result of what we ingest. But we believe, I think, a whole bunch of other uh, incompatible, incoherent flotsam and jetsam of our culture things. And not just my mother, but I was just talking to Lori Taylor that said, he actually said, he said, I, I actually say that lobster doesn't agree with me, but I didn't know what I meant when I said it. So it's a way of, of uh, I'm an historian, but it's a way of prompting curiosity about modern culture. And I think one rather needs the historical perspective to make many aspects of, of our present circumstances e interesting and probable. I wonder if I might just, um, um, I'll just just follow up on that, because one of the things I found very sort of counterintuitive about what you were saying was how much you kind of stressed in the earlier pe period that dietetics, in fact, you know, very much put the stress on people being responsible for their own health. And I thought of, I always thought of that as a very modern phenomenon, particularly increasingly with the internet and various other kind of ways in which lay people have got access to expertise, all sorts of medical expertise that they didn't have before. It seemed to me much more a kind of modern condition to feel responsible for one's own condition. So I was, I was kind of quite surprised by that I, emphasis I on the earlier that, period. That's, that's, I, w I wonder, because I'm fobbed off to the website when my doctor hasn't, <clears throat> hasn't got time to, yeah. uh, to talk to me, so I'm not sure. Uh, it is true that we, we, we access this wonderful world of digital information. Uh, and one can talk about it being responsible. But what, what I want to say is, um, is I, I don't think that is a good index of responsibility. For example, in an equally influential framework, which is gathering cultural power and grip, uh, many aspects of our body's function and many mental and, and uh, uh, emotional functions have been ascribed to a new spectacularly developing realm of uh, irresponsibility, which is to say your genome. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we were getting very skilled and have been skilled even before genomics uh, in <coughs> explaining what we are and what we do in terms of things that we cannot be expected to be responsible for. Uh, the, 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 the context for the, the six things non-natural is that I'm going to tell you what you should do that you have under your rational control if you're only, shall I say it in a non-gendered sense, only a man. And that includes things that we would never think in our culture that we'd be rightly held to account for, like the, the, the management of, of our emotions. So I, I take what you're saying, and I think there's something to be said about taking responsibility for our health, especially with the rise of, uh, well, the decline in resources put into health systems on the one hand, and the rise of digital access to information on the other. I think a political economical explanation of that is better, for my mind, than a, than a positive value placed upon taking responsibility for your health. You make a decision. Uh, I think in America this also has a legal framework, so you have to ask for what kind of operation you want. You can't say, make me better. You have to ask for a specific operation. 
So I, I, I think I, I would mainly want to disagree with you while recognizing the phenomenon that you're, that you're pointing to. Okay, I think we've got, oh, several people, great. Do you want to take more than one at a time, actually? Give them a... To you. Huh? We Up take a you. couple, maybe, maybe take a couple at a time? So, sorry, carry on. Mm -hmm. Yep. Let me ask the Chair's question in a different form. Um, it does seem to me that there is an aspect of the moral to instrumental dietary advice in the modern world. And obesity is a very good example. And indeed, one of the debates that's going on now are, are obese people indulgent and irresponsible, or is it something that we must appreciate their obesity and treatment? Uh, another way to do it, a, a more positive way, is to say, does public health and the concept of public health always embody some civic responsibility or civic obligation? And hence, this came out very clearly in Britain a while ago, and to improve public health, we needed the fully engaged patient who looked after their own uh, well-being, including their eating behavior, as an aspect of public health and their responsibility to their fellow citizens. I wonder if you could comment on those aspects of the link, continuing linkage between instrumentalism and morality in food. Can I take that briefly because that's yep. a, that's a it's, you must be right in the, in the general claim because it's impossible, I think it's impossible, to take any activity as much a, a fabric of our everyday life as well as a matter of social policy as eating and drinking and to say it has no moral sequelae. Of course it does. Uh, we are exploring some of them. Uh, you, you mentioned obesity. I will also give you tobacco. Alcohol. Alcohol. And further, I'll give you the, the rapidly developing uh, perception that one has somehow been an immoral person by eating a tomato out of season. In other words, the season on local. Here, to take the last first, here there's a very pronounced moral discourse, especially you find in educated middle class society, and I think especially in the United States, um, where the sin is not a, a sin committed against oneself or God's laws or natural laws for one's body uh, and not to civic society but to the planet. It's a very recently developing notion of, of, of virtue. Um, I think I, I'd say 20-25 years ago no one thought like that. So that eating is part of an enormously and increasingly influential moral fabric. I've seen people hiss that for ordering an out-of-season tomato. And the, and the chef comes to the table and says, we only serve seasonal things here. Um, that said, uh, we are exploring ways in which to form new senses of moral sequelae from the everyday patterns of eating and drinking. I think there, however, is something different. And that is we are now referring to the consequences of eating and drinking in certain ways. What I want to say is about traditional dietetics, the morality was in the consumption itself. So that's the, that, I think, has been lost. We, I think we say that if you eat so as to make yourself obese, you have made certain demands upon airlines are exploring what they can do to obese people. Public health systems are exploring what they can do. Same thing with smoking. 
So there's, there's that. But what I want to say is the morality, the good and the good for you in traditional dietetics is in the same act. Here, it's in the consequences of those acts. But it, it would be foolish to, to say simply that uh, our understanding of eating and drinking has become amoralized. It hasn't, and you're, you're right to. So we've got two, I think. Yep. <laughs> Um, I'm curious whether you uh, see a contrast as well with uh, dietetics um, having perhaps no explicit recommendations of certain foods, which you um, now perhaps see more. So, for example, it seems that current uh, chemical information or nutritional facts, as you have on the screen, they, they focus very much on uh, the content of that particular pack. Uh, and even more so, uh, in, in information, there is a lot of focus on superfoods or individual ingredients that are supposedly very good for you. Um, so I was curious whether in um, more previous times there were recommendations about specific foods and also interested in, in your views on maybe in addition to the food industry, which is now taking over parts of the recommendations of um, uh, information of what to eat, uh, there's also the weight loss industry and other groups such as the magazines and the government which seem to be making um, claims on what to eat and how to deal with that. Yes, no, of course, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, a lot depends on that, including the, the, the burgeoning nutraceutical industry and the relationship between nutraceuticals and nutrigenomics. We're going to be hearing a lot more of that in the, the, new, the near future. In general, what I want to say, because of the qualitative relationship, uh, so that you have a melon which is uh, cold and wet, and given the momentary constitution of your body, the time of year, which I didn't mention, your stage of life, which I also didn't mention, you, you, you might, you might uh, say that a melon was rather bad for you, or you might even say that a melon was rather good for you. But it's a qualitative relationship relating to balance, and so that argues against the idea of any particular food. Once you move to the world of chemical constituents, and you assess a melon, like a, when a pineapple appeared, in the old world coming from Hispaniola and Columbus brought the, the pineapple back. It was such a remarkable thing. And the spice trade is another example of this. But not in terms of chemical constituents, but these foods from strange lands might have strange qualities associated with them. There was quite, you're right, there, is quite, there was quite a lot of discourse especially associated with foods from the new world and spices from the east. But superfoods, no and language of particular constituents. Now, I think the notion of a superfood, the notion of maximizing performance, looks, I think that really depends upon a, a repertoire of, of chemical constituents in relation to your particular meta metabolism. So that looks like the answer to your question, and I'd like to think about that a lot more, but it looks like um, the whole notion of, of, of superfoods has got to testify to a very recent culture, I think. Yes. Russell Hayton. Um, I used to milk cows, um, about 25 in a herd. Now it's about 8,000, and they're industrialized. And uh, am I going to ask you two questions? One is, can you define what food is, please? Because um, I'm trying to buy milk, which is produced by cows, it actually goes out to graze. And just recently, I've um, come across a statement from the book I read that I ought to be drinking unpasteurized milk. And I've found a source of unpasteurized milk 
Now this seems that Pasteur, from this guy who wrote it, Eliot, is saying that um, Pasteur pinched the information from another guy and got it wrong, and that pasteurisation might stop a little bit of salmonella, but it's also destroying the value of milk in our internal immune system. So do I, who's, who do I believe when I read such things, that pasteurisation is good, but I like my unpasteurised milk, it tastes better? I, th I, th I think you've given a particular expression of a, of a malaise that affects all, which is, as you put it, who to believe. I mean, one of the characteristics of nutritional expertise for all its institutionalization in medical schools in the UK, the US, and, and elsewhere is that uh, you pick up the Times or the Guardian or whatever you, you like one day and uh, something is good for you and wards off cancer and next week, wait, it's something else or the study. So there's a vertiginous quality to the relationship between expertise, including and including the the goodness or not of pasteurized milk. Um, this is a big. This is a live issue both in the United States and uh, and elsewhere. So I, let me leave it like that. The who to believe question is always going to be with us for this foreseeable future. About my, what about my intuitiveness? My well, the intuitive thing is quite interesting. I would say. If you ask, well, if I ask my students, but if you if you ask um, the book reading public, who's the uh, name a nutritional expert? Name an expert on food ways and what we ought to be eating. In the United States, and I know he's big here, is Michael Pollan, not a scientist at all, not a doctor at all, a journalist. Michael Pollan has had enormous influence. First, uh, well, several books before the most influential one was called The Omnivore's Dilemma, and then. Uh, allegedly acceding to pressure from the, the readership to say what he recommended that one eat, he wrote a little book called In Defense of Food. And his reply to your question, he has a series of very homespun maxims. I, I have them on a slide somewhere. Uh, the first one is very simple, eat food. Now what does that mean? He says what it means. It means, uh, he parses by saying, eat only stuff that your, and he says, I quote, your great-grandmother would have recognized as food. And so anytime you see on a label polysorbate 80, don't eat it. Whether that includes pasteurization depends on the age of his grandmother. But um, unpasteurized milk used to kill a lot of people, by the way. Whether it, unpasteurized milk has to kill anybody is, quite, is another matter. Okay. But in other words, Michael Pollan not a doctor, not a scientist, you, you recognize the name, the most influential uh, food expert writing about what ought to eat, uh, says eat food. And food is defined as what your grandmother or great-grandmother would have recognized as food. So none of this stuff, no Twinkies, uh, no Big Macs, nothing that contains polysorbate 80 or a, a series of uh, coated dyes or, or additives. Uh, everything minimally <coughs> processed. Enormous constituency in the States, a nostalgic turn, but also a, a, a curious episode in the history of expertise. So he is on the one hand uh, expressing skepticism about the Liebigian framework of, of analyzing food in, in terms of uh, their constituents, what he calls nutritionism, in favor of something which looks like robust common sense. But when it suits him, 
picking up the latest scientific finding about the ratio between omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids to say why one ought to eat grass-fed beef as opposed to grain-fed beef. Anyway, let's just take a, a last one there. Sorry, because we've got drinks following shortly. Yes? Thank you. Um, thank you for that talk. I really enjoyed it. I was, I'm interested, and I think this follows up quite well, actually, in your argument that medicalization isn't actually expanding, it's decreasing. And I guess my, what I'm curious about is how you would alternatively describe the relationship between uh, this, the, the relationship between medicine and our bodies and ourselves, recognizing, of course, our bodies and ourselves is the vernacular that sought to intervene in medicalization by linking up the expertise with the everyday. So how would you alternatively yeah. describe this moment? I, tr I try to, not to describe it, but to give an indication of how one would um, describe it. And w one of the characteristics in response to the question, I, I noticed that medical expertise is incredibly heterogeneous. So whenever time you have an argument with a friend about, say, in the Atkins side, ketosis, whether ketosis is pathological or normal, you, you'll hear these in you know, junior common rooms, senior common rooms, and in the, in the people arguing about what they take to be the latest scientific finding. The reason that this sort of counsel, this sort of counsel has so little um, grip is that it, it doesn't have a, a, an obvious underpinning in terms of the repertoire of chemical constituents and knowledge of intermediate metabolism. That doesn't parse into how much cholesterol, how much uh, monosaturated and uh, polysaturated fats to consume. You don't get anywhere to, to that, to, to the nutrition, you don't get to the nutrition label by this way, by this, by this <laughs> technique. And, so I think it's a story about the path dependency of the rise of what, who count as our nutritional experts, that the nutritional expertise became reconstituted through the 18th and 19th century and into the 20th century through the, uh, the chemical understanding of the constituents of food in relation to the, the, the physiological understanding of intermediate metabolism. That, do, that puts the expert in no position to say stuff like that. And so what our experts tend to say is fiber good, fiber not so good, monosaturated fatty acids okay, and things of that sort. That's why you don't find them saying things like this. And conversely, why you do find McDonald's saying things like this, sort of tapping into what remains of, of the prudential ethics and prudential wisdom in our culture. I don't know with what authority they say things like that, but by God, they do. You don't have to search very far. To, to, uh, to find this sort of thing. I hope that's some sort of, of, of answer. I don't, uh, you know, I think, the, I think the mistake would be to, to think you knew how stably to describe the modern condition of knowing about our food and, and, and our bodies. I think we're a mess. Right, well, on that note, perfect yes. <laughs> note. Um, thank you very, very much for coming, and thank you very much. Um, Steve for the talk and please do join us um, for a drink in the atrium which is kind of um, just outside, just continue along the corridor a wee bit. Thank you very much.